Philippians 2 last week, and tonight we begin uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, nothing moves without friction. Have you found that out in your life? Uh, anything that we do is going to produce some friction. Uh, if we proceed on this journey of joy that Paul's talking about here in this book, we're going to have all kinds of things thrown in our path to try to prohibit us from having joy. Satan doesn't want you happy. He doesn't want you smiling. He doesn't want you to have the joy of God. So th things are going to come our way to prohibit us from this joy. Now here in chapter 3, Paul reminds us of our enemy. And he gives us a report on him. He reminds us that he'll do anything he can to circumvent our joy in our life. Now, how he tries to steal our joy and, and a couple of ways he does it, we're going to look at tonight. Because knowing what's going to happen and knowing what to expect often helps us to snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat. And, uh, and so let's look at those tonight. We're going to start verses 1 and 2. We're going to read four verses. Verse 1, 2, then verse 18 and 19. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but, it, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now let's go down to 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Today I'm going to look at the opposite of our joy as we move into this chapter. Father, we thank you for those that are here. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word and that all that would be said would be honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the promise in John 10.10. 10. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I'm glad that God, uh, Jesus, wants us to have joy. He wants us to have an abundant life. Now, here we are. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. God comes and desires to bring us to life, not only, uh, uh, not only eternally, but on earth as well. But if we, as much as we like that verse in John 10, 10, you ought to remember the first part of the verse says, but the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. God is the joy giver. Satan is the joy killer. And if we allow him to do so, he'll do everything he can to make us miserable, discouraged, defeated in our everyday Christian life. Now, we must submit every day one to the, one or the other. We're going to submit to God, or we're going to submit to uh, the devil, our flesh, our circumstances, all those things, and we won't have joy. God cannot rule the throne of our hearts if Satan is dwelling in the cellar of our thoughts. And so we must give over our mindset to the right thing. Remember that Satan is a defeated foe. Uh, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If we would just remember that Satan was defeated at the cross, he's going to be defeated at the end, it helps if we read the back of the book, we find out what's going to happen and realize we're already victors, we're already more than conquerors through him that loved us, and so let's live like that. Uh, when Satan knocks at your door, then you let the Savior answer the door uh, and let him deal with that because we do not have to be defeated by him. Let's start unpacking these verses here. He starts with, finally, my brethren. Uh, Paul uh, is finally, he, he's not saying, he's not like those Baptist preachers that use the word finally before the sermon is half over, because he's just half over here. He's not saying finally as in he's finishing up. He's, finally, I'm coming to the point of this letter. That's what the purpose of it is. 
final amount, but he's dealt with a couple of things up to this point. Now he's coming to the meat of the letter here, and uh, he's uh, he's only halfway through, so we know it's not the end. But uh, we're coming to the subject at hand. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Joy comes from one source. I have to think of what this prompted. Now, if you remember, we've come up. Uh, Epaphroditus has brought this letter. Uh, Paul uh, has, has desired to send Timothy. He hasn't done that yet, but he sent Epaphroditus with this letter. And I have to wonder what kind of uh, conversation this would prompt as they're reading this letter to the church. I assume this is being read publicly. Uh, at that time, email forwards had not yet been uh, invented, and so they didn't get Paul's letter and blast it like we do our emails, and as soon as I get a missionary letter, it can be out to everyone pretty much immediately. Here, uh, presumably they're reading it in a group here, and I have to wonder if somebody just doesn't maybe challenge that. Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord, and maybe he would ask Epaphroditus, hey, does Paul, you were there, is Paul really rejoicing in that prison? I mean, he's chained to guards. He's got no privacy. He's got no freedom. He's got to meet with Caesar soon. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, is he really rejoicing or is he just putting us on? And then there might be another voice from the back of the room saying, hey, uh, I know he's rejoicing. The first time I met Paul, it was me, the keeper of the prison, that slapped him in the stocks and put him in the middle of my prison. He was beaten and he was bloody. And guess what he did then? He sang. He and Silas, both of them, sang. And it we know it pricked his heart, and he, he could have said that my family and I are both here because, uh, because of his joy then. You ask me if he's rejoicing now, I bet you Paul's singing in that jail. What a testimony Paul had uh, already to the people here at, the, at Philippi. So Epaphroditus is telling this congregation how Paul's joy is even the talk of the guards back there. We know that uh, the, the guards of the, the prison guards themselves were getting saved, and people in Caesar's household were getting saved because of the testimony of this prisoner. What a, what a tremendous thing it is when we respond correctly to hard times. You know what a testimony it is for a Christian, for a child of God, when, when hard times hit us, the way that we respond is going to make an impact in other people. Your best sermon is you in the valley. Your best sermon you'll ever preach is you in the valley. People watch you when you're in the valley. People watch you when you're being attacked. And people watch you when you're going through hard times. And so allow God's joy to remain in you. Happiness can come from many sources, but true joy can only come from the Lord. Many people find happiness in, in all kinds of different places, in, in something new or uh, in a promotion or in a bar or in sin or in drugs. They find temporary happiness. But these moments of exhilaration do not produce any lasting joy. There's a there's a hangover to follow, not joy, and so uh, we don't find it in there. The joy that God gives can come to someone who has absolutely nothing, and they can still have joy. Later in this epistle, Paul writes, chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Boy, that's a great place to be, isn't it? It's better, I tell my kids this all the time, it's better to want everything that you have than to have everything that you want. It's a whole lot better to want. A lot of people have a lot and they don't want what they have. Uh, but uh, to, to, if we can enjoy and be grateful for what we have. Now, joyful contentment is not found 
in our circumstances. It's found in our resource. And our resource is Christ within us. Uh, he's always present no matter what the situation. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he saith, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So because he's with us, we can have joy. Because he dwells in us, we can have joy. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, it does not matter how much money you have. You cannot buy joy. You can't. You, know, you can buy happiness. Somebody said recently, they say money can't buy happiness, but it sure buys everything else, but it don't buy happiness. It can buy temporary happiness, but it won't buy joy. Carl Rabider is a wealthy businessman from Austria, and he has decided that he's going to give away everything. He's very wealthy. And he's going to give it all away. Going to give away his fortune. A $1.4 million house, another home worth about that. Uh, his cars, a plane. Uh, he's got a farmhouse, all the furnishings in these homes, all his art that he's collected. He's going to give it all away. He says this, and I quote, My idea is to have nothing left. Money is counterproductive. It prevents happiness to come. The tipping point came when he was in Hawaii. And he says this, it was a shock in my life when I realized how horrible and without feeling and soulless that the five-star lifestyle is. He plans to move to a little shack in the woods. Anybody want his phone number? I already called. He's not answering. But uh, here's the problem, though. Just because he's changing his circumstances, it's not going to bring him joy. He might think that this is why he's miserable, now he changes and, and that now he'll be happy. But it's not going to bring him joy because nothing in life, no circumstance, can bring us joy. It can do it temporarily, but it cannot do anything for us in the long run. And so just as his money made him miserable, so will no money make him miserable because we've got to have uh, something beyond circumstances. It is not... Uh, it, it doesn't matter what circumstance you depend on. It's the depending, not the situation, that brings the misery. You understand what I mean by that? Let me give you an example. A person without money can be joyful unless his joy depends on having money. So it's the depending that causes us misery, not the circumstance itself. A lot of people that I know have lots of money, and they're perfectly happy and joyful. The money, money is amoral. It doesn't make you wicked or evil just because you have it, and you aren't more righteous because you don't have it. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. And so uh, it's depending on it is what makes one miserable. And so let's make sure that we're not circumstantially happy and joyful. So Psalm 1611 Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy comes from one source. Joy also, secondly, continues in an ongoing steadfastness. Look at verse 1 again. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Uh, now, he, he's trying to warn them against having the idea. We've heard all this before. Paul's saying, look, I'm not, how many times have you ever heard a preacher get up? I'm not 
giving you anything new today, well, then why am I here? You know, well, yeah, we understand that uh, the things we hear from the Bible aren't going to be new always. I mean, a lot of times we need to hear the same things over and over again. Have you had kids? I mean, we are like kids in that way. we got to hear the same thing over and over and over again. You talk to any pastor, and they'll tell you one of the, one of the frustrations. It's not really a frustration to me as much because I think I understand the human psyche because I am one, but uh, one of the things that, that uh, bothers pastors is when they... They can preach a whole series on something, and an evangelist comes in, preaches one message on it. Everybody's at the altar, you know, getting, and he hadn't been able to get through. Well, I know that there's a there's a connection there, obviously, but but uh, we need to be told over and over and over and over sometimes before the thing settles in. And so that's what Paul's saying here. Uh, need to hear it again. And by the way, we get our joy and satisfaction out of the true and tested things in life. Sometimes we think we want to hear new things or we want to experience new things but uh it's that uh, the old hamburger never goes out of style you know your favorite sweatshirt uh those things are are the true tested things and and these this is here's another thing that that uh society might tell you is, is going out of style or it's uh becoming outdated or it's no longer relevant uh, we need to get right back in this book amen and I need to believe it live it and uh, read it and, and uh, not ever think that it gets too old. There is value in ongoing, continuous instruction from the Word of God. Isaiah 28, 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk, drawn from the breast, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And that's the word of God. We, we're faithful in it. We continue to read it. And here, might get something here today, read the same thing tomorrow, get something else. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs or Psalms or the Gospels over and over, you know how you can get something different every time you read the same thing. Because the Bible is a book that's alive. I challenge you, read in your Bible every day of your life. It doesn't have to be a monstrous amount, but read something in the Bible. We've got those calendars we're giving out. One of the things I didn't realize till we got them here, uh, that they have a Bible reading schedule on every day. And uh, what a challenge that would be for you to take that in the new year and just circle every day that you read that those verses down there. I guarantee you, you open your heart, uh, to the Word of God, and he'll teach you something every day. David came to the point in his life when joy was missing. And we know, and he knew why joy was missing. He had sinned. Uh, his walk with the Lord had been interrupted by his will of the flesh. And when your walk with the Lord gets interrupted by the will of your flesh, then sin usually is the result of that. Uh, no doubt the one-night stand he had with Bathsheba brought him momentary pleasure and happiness, but then turned all to misery. That's what sin always does. Sin brings you immediate pleasure and long-term consequences. Uh, God's will doesn't always bring immediate pleasure, but it brings long-term uh, reward, see? Those are the differences. That's why Satan is so effective. Why do you think that we have... However many people, I'm grateful for everyone that's here tonight, but why do you think we have 50 people here tonight and I'll have uh, thousands at a concert uh, or at a bar or at a, wherever uh, you go, wherever sin abounds, uh, you're gonna, it's not a problem to bring that. that. There's immediate reward there. Well, it might not be immediate reward here uh, in serving God, but the long-term rewards are there. It all depends on how far ahead we look, whether we're going to 
uh, serve God or serve the flesh. But David, turn your Bibles, if you would, Psalm 51, getting back to David here. When he recognized uh, his, when he finally realized he had to get right with God, look what it says in verse number 11. Purge me, Psalm 51, uh, 7, actually, purge me with hyssop, he says, and I will be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. The bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and, not, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now here's, here's something that we want to pay real close attention to. Uh, David was man after God's own heart. He was God's man. Let me ask you a question here. When he had, had an adulterous affair, he lied about it, then he murdered the woman's husband to cover it up, and then he lied about that, and he lived in this deceit for a year. Is that enough for David to lose his salvation? Absolutely not. Our salvation does not depend on our works. However, was David a happy camper? No, he was miserable. Look what he says here. Restore unto me not my salvation, but restore the joy of my salvation. Oh, sin brings misery. Is joy missing in your life tonight? One source for the joy to come from is the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's maintained through faithfulness, steadfastness. And if joy is missing out of your life uh, look, this is one area for us to check. Is there sin residing there that we need to get right? Now, look at verse 2. We come to deceptive impostors here. The devil has many weapons in his arsenal. Look at verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, perhaps his most favorite weapon and most effective weapon is deception. Satan is, above all, a deceiver. He deceives people uh, into many things. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And then he goes on, and no marvel, for Satan himself is an angel of light. Satan does not come in a red suit, horns, and a pitchfork. Right? Satan comes like an angel of light. He looks really good when he comes to you. He's a smooth talker. Whatever form he comes into our lives, and he'll have great reasoning for what the temptation is. Now, in Revelation 20, verse 10, uh, we see that the devil that deceived them was cast in a lake of fire and brimstone. Satan talks a good game, but he does not have a good end coming for him. And so, especially as the time draws near, uh, it seems like he is just ramping it up. Now, we must stay on guard then. 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. All right, the Bible is very clear on what Satan will try to uh, tempt us. He'll try to discourage us. And so the Bible gives us a great, uh, a great, great, uh, equips us to be able to uh, combat Satan in all these areas. That's why it's so good to stay faithful in the Bible and reading that every day. Now, a couple of things we're going to look at here. Beware of inattentiveness here. Beware of dogs. Now, uh, this part about dogs in, in Michigan, 
when I lived there, I had a German Shepherd. My opinion, the best dog I've ever had. He, he was just a, he was a really good dog. And uh, he lived in our garage, and uh, he, he, he had, we had a huge garage. It was connected to the house, so he kind of stayed in that section when he wasn't in the house. And, and uh, one night, one of my deacons, uh, one of our deacons at our church, he, was, uh, he had a, a shop, and he had a bunch of scrap wood he was going to give me to burn in my wood stove. And so it was in a barrel. He says, I'll bring it by. I wasn't home. And uh, he just left me a voice, a message, or a text, said, I'm going to leave it, and we'll put it in your garage. It, was, it would stay dry there, and it was very kind of him, except I had a German Shepherd on the inside. And so uh, he opens the door. Max was my dog's name. So Max, he opens the door and stands at the door, and Max is standing right there and doesn't attack, doesn't bark, just gives him a, I love him. He was just great. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a big talker. He just got the job done. Just growled once. And my friend Dave uh, said, oh, it's okay, Max, he knew his name, and he said, I'm coming in, and they growled a second time, and so then Dave put his hand out to kind of uh, calm him, and there was no barking, there was no attack, there was just two steps forward, and chomped down on the hand, went all the way through, did no, was, was bad, a bad bite, just chomped down, and then backed up again, stood back with one more growl, as if to say, if that wasn't enough, we've got more here for you, you know, and he decided he's going to leave his uh, things outside, but have you, ever, have you ever been surprised by a dog? I have one time, I was out on visitation, and I got bitten in an unmentionable place uh, by a dog who was chasing me, all right, away from his house. They don't like soliners at that house, and so uh, they had a dog trained to take. That's the only time I've ever been bitten. But a dog is a dangerous animal, especially when you're surprised by him or when you surprise him. Uh, when you're not aware of his presence, sometimes this makes it worse. You ever wonder how the disciples could forsake the Lord in his greatest hour of need? They've been with him for three years. At the moment of his betrayal, they allow themselves to become inattentive. Uh, they came to the garden that night. Jesus had warned them uh, what was going to happen, and he had begun to be sorrowful and heavy, the Bible says in Matthew 26, 37. Then he said, My soul is extremely sorrowful, even to death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. But they were inattentive, and they fell asleep. Is it any wonder, then later in the same chapter, we read the words, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They were inattentive. Uh, Peter, we know, thought it could never happen to him. I'm sure the other men would have said the same thing. Though all men should offend thee, I will never forsake thee, he said, but he did. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Attrition and the Lord's work always follows a lack of attention to the Lord's words. Say that again. Attrition in the Lord's work always follows an inattention to the Lord's words. We need to be attentive. Uh, we need to be attentive. And then beware of infiltration. The Bible says beware of evildoers. God warns us here of an inside job, essentially. One hand... Uh, it, it's interesting, different descriptions in the Bible for Satan. We, he's called a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8, be, uh, devouring who he can, and we need to be sober, be vigilant. And in Matthew seven fifteen, he points out another animal. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, uh, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. This is one of Satan's deceptive ploys here. 
Of course, we are not going to allow a wolf into our midst. And so he puts wolves in sheep's clothing, the Bible says. Somebody that looks like a sheep, but they're actually inside a wolf. And uh, these are evil workers, hoping that because I look like a sheep, maybe they won't notice what I really am. But this verse calls them evil workers. They're right alongside others in the work, but they're actually there to destroy the work. Uh, every church deals with this. Uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, Paul faced this deceit in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, and that because of false brethren, unawares. Why were they unaware they were in sheep's clothing? They don't announce themselves. People never come into a church and announce their intentions to hurt and destroy and to gossip and to pick and to, to be critical. They don't announce that kind of stuff. That's just uh, what they do. They come in uh, in sheep's clothing. But every once in a while, uh, this happens. Satan will have his... Uh, we've said often God doesn't have any secret agents. God has no secret agents. All right, No place for them. We aren't to hide our identity as a Christian. But Satan has lots of secret agents, and they're trying to cause dissension in the body of Christ. I'm convinced that many times these people are unaware they're even being used by Satan, uh, but uh, making wrong decisions. We need to be very careful, keep our hearts in tune with the Lord, in tune with one another. Remember, we've talked often about unity in the church. What it looks like is each one of us having our hearts in tune with Christ, then automatically we're in tune with one another. And so that's what we're looking for. And so beware of infiltration here. Beware of evil workers. And then beware of indoctrination. He says beware of the concision. Now, I believe what Paul's referring to here is basically short for circumcision, but he doesn't even call it circumcision because concision is a cutting or mutilation of the flesh. Circumcision has now, by this point of this writing, has lost its spiritual significance. Yet there were a lot of people that were claiming circumcision was necessary to, uh, to be a Christian, and so they were trying to add this work into Christianity. Folks are forever trying to add works into Christianity. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His grace, His mercy, He has saved us. Oh, but you have to be baptized. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it is by His mercy, He has saved us. Oh, but you need to be a member of a good church. And those things are good, but they're not part of salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing we earn, our death. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. So there is something you earn, your casket. That's what you earn. That's what I earn by our lifestyle. We do not earn heaven. That's why the verse is finished. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It talks about earning, something you earn, and it talks about a gift, something you can't earn. But anyway, so here he's saying beware of this. Beware of this indoctrination. People are constantly trying to add things to what, we, to what the Lord says, add things to the Bible. Certain men, in Acts 15, 1, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, saying, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that's a lie, but that's what they were doing. They were infiltrating this church, and so beware of the concision. We need to beware of indoctrination. When something doesn't line up with Scripture, we need to be careful in those areas. We, we uh, need to recognize that. 
Three times in the New Testament, God proclaims a simple warning. Be not deceived. Why? Because we are so easily deceived. We are easily deceived. You ever watched uh, infomercial late at night and bought something you probably shouldn't have and it was a waste of money? We're deceived easily, aren't we? Maybe I'm the only one guilty of that stuff, but I mean that knife looked really good on the on the television, and I cut it, and it couldn't cut hot butter. You know that's how we're deceived sometimes. But you can recover from being deceived by a used car car salesman, telemarketer, but you cannot be, uh, you can't afford to be deceived when it comes to spiritual truth. The payment on Satan's scams lasts into eternity. Don't get deceived, and that's why the Bible tells us over and over. Be not deceived. And then we have a destructive immediacy here. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He reminds us again that joy has its opposition. If you set out to have joy in this, uh, like this letter tells us, rejoice always, and everything give thanks, uh, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, He's constantly talking about joy. If you determine you're going to have joy in your life, you're going to have lots of opposition to that joy. You ever made a decision at the altar? I'm not going to get angry. Before you get out of the parking lot, something's going to happen to make you angry. That's just how Satan works. He doesn't like those decisions. I've, I've uh, been there tons of times. Make a decision for God and then... Everything falls apart trying to get you to undo that. Satan knows what he's doing. So don't let this thief rob you of your joy. That's what the Bible's telling us. He wants the joy. He's going to be a robber of it, and God's the giver of it. So let uh, the Lord take the joy from him. Don't allow Satan to rob it from you. Watch out for fleshly carnality. Verses 18, uh, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. We're talking about carnality here. Carnal people are led by the flesh. And if your God is your belly, there's no, other, there's no better way to say you are led by your flesh. We don't, uh, if, if this is making all my decisions, this is going to get a lot bigger. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, I need to make my eating decisions here, not only with my, with my belly. <laughs> Amen? We all understand this truth here. So, carnality is what we're talking about here. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this. And brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying, strife, divisions. Why? Because you're carnal, is what he's saying. If we allow ourselves to be led by our flesh, that's what's going to happen. We're going to be envious. We're going to be backbiting, we're going to be arguing, we're going to be fussing, we're going to have, uh, be nitpicking, be critical if we allow ourselves to be led by the flesh. So look at the in a spiritual mirror. According to that verse, are you still a baby Christian even though you've been saved for a while? Are you constantly battling envy and pettiness with others? Are you at odds with family members or with spiritual leaders in your life? Are you divided constantly between right and wrong, between the flesh and the spirit? If you're saved and battling those things, you're probably dealing in carnality. So we need to grow in Christ. It's time to crucify the flesh. 
Uh, Paul says this, Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. We put to death the desires of the flesh. We say no to the flesh. No, you're not making the decisions. Hey, a lot of us have done it with food. I mean, if you've ever been on a diet, you make those decisions. Peanut butter pie, man, made in heaven, sent to earth. But sometimes you've got to say no, amen? We look at, uh, sometimes you've you, you got to choose the salad over the pizza because making decisions here, not making decisions with the flesh. In our Christian life, we better be making this. So when we're talking about crucifying the flesh, we're talking about mortifying the flesh, putting it to death. No flesh, you're not making the decision for me. Your flesh flares up in anger. <coughs> A spiritual person, no, 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 no anger here. Lord, forgive the anger. Make this right. Uh, get it, get it taken care of. Uh, get forgiveness for it. Don't allow it to take over your life. Bitterness. You dwell on hurts. Bitterness is simply unresolved violations to your justice system. That's all a bitterness is. Something happens, it violates your justice system. In other words, you think it's wrong, and then it remains unresolved. That's all bitterness is, unresolved violation of your justice system. So, what hap all of us have violations to our justice system, that's life. So all of us have that happen. Things happen that are wrong. But if we allow them to remain unresolved, meaning we cannot let them go, it's going to turn into bitterness. You've got to crucify the flesh. You've got to mortify it, flesh. You're not going to win over me. I'm making the decisions here. We have to live in the spirit, not in the flesh. And so we got to remember that the flesh cannot be in control. God needs to be in control. When God is not in control, uh, the opportunity for joy in our life is gone like a bird. We're not going to have a joy if our flesh is in control. Just, I don't mean to be mean. I know that people end up places and have down moments. I'm not trying to put anybody down, but uh, I, I go to the jail. I go to the mission, and I see people who are led by the flesh. They do what they want to do, and they end up in really bad places because they haven't taken control and said no to some things. There are some things we've got to say no to as a Christian. No to, to uh, sin and those things in our life. Joy in the flesh is temporary. Spirit-led life produces eternal joys. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then, verse 19, we uh, look at watching for foolish conceitedness. And whose glory is in their shame. Boy, I tell you something. I see this more today than ever in history. I haven't been in history, but I read about it. I've never seen where people are more proud of their shame than today. Shameful things that used to be hidden. And now, not only is it thrust in our faces, but with pride. They even have parades. Uh, making a big deal about things. Whose glory is their shame. A man, this is interesting to me, a man knows more bad, each and every one of us in here, we know more bad about ourselves than anybody else in here does. Even your spouse, you know more bad about yourself. And yet you think more highly of yourself than probably anybody else in here does. 
Isn't that funny how humans are? We think we're, we're, very, we're very forgiving of ourselves. We are our most understanding critic. We are. I mean, somebody else does what I do. You ever gotten mad because your kids do what you do? It's frustrating, isn't it? I mean, it's okay when I... That's how we think, isn't it? We won't say it, but we kind of feel like it's okay when I do it, but it's not okay when they do it. Uh, do a little background check on the Apostle Paul. It's interesting. He probably had more to boast about than anybody else in the New Testament. But this is what he said about himself. Yet of myself, I will not glory, but in my infirmities. Whew. That's tough. First Timothy, he says, Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The Apostle Paul said that. I am chief. A man wrapped up in himself makes a mighty small package, but there's a lot of people exactly there wrapped up in themselves. And let's not be foolishly conceited. Proverbs 25, 27, it is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. That's, uh, by the way, prophecy, that verse. I don't know if you knew it, but Proverbs 25, 27 prophesied Facebook. Let me read it to you again. For men to search their own glory is not glory. Isn't that Facebook in a nutshell? Seeking their own glory. Too much time at the dessert table will destroy you physically. Too much time in self-exaltation will destroy you spiritually. We can't be caught up in trying to build ourselves up. God says, humble yourself and I will lift you up. You just humble yourself. God has his ways of cutting us down to size. Before Paul became Paul, you know what his name was? Saul. Saul was his name before he was saved. Uh, Saul, the, the, best, the best way that we can describe in English what that name meant is big shot. He was a big shot. He was big stuff. But when Saul, Mr. Big Shot, got saved, his name was changed to Paul. Uh, because God doesn't use big shots. God uses humble people. So he changed his name, Matthew 23, 12, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted by somebody else. Just humble yourself. Don't exalt yourself. We live in a society today where people do nothing but exalt themselves. Look at me. And they have... They have social media, they have uh, uh, Snapchat, they have Facebook, they have you, all these different things to try to build themselves up. That's the way society shapes us. But the Bible says, uh, humble yourself. And then watch for foreign control. Verse 19 here, it ends. Whose mind, who mind earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You know that song. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven. So while we're here, we need to mind ourselves for foreign control. If this earth controls us, we're under foreign control because this is not our home. We're not citizens of the earth. We're citizens of heaven. We're just passing through earth. But we, we live sometimes as if this is our permanent home. And it's not. We're just passing through. 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. <clears throat> so what Paul's basically saying is, look, I can do, there's a lot of things I can do, but they're not expedient. They're not good for me to do these things. So 
really spiritually mature thing for us to come to grips with, isn't it? You know, understand that uh, not everything that we can do, should we do, we ought to mind uh, foreign control. We, he's saying here that uh, in verse 19, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things. These are people that are controlled by earthly riches, by money, by all things earthly. As a Christian, we shouldn't be controlled by earthly things. One day the trumpet will sound, Jesus will return, and what a great gathering that will be. But I, I'm afraid that when he does come back, he'll find his bride in bed with the world. James talked about that. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity with God? James didn't mess around, man. He was a preacher. He preached pretty straight. He pointed his finger out to his people. He was preaching, called them a bunch of adulterers and adulteresses. Why? Because they love the world. You're the bride of Christ. You're not to be in bed with the world. You're supposed to live for God, be the bride of Christ. And so uh, belief should impact our behavior. If we recognize that, it's going to uh, bear on how we live. So I know we talked about a lot of different things, <coughs> but the point of the message today is that joy comes from one source. Joy comes from above. The temporary joy down here on earth is just that. It's temporary. It's not going to last forever. It'll pass away one day. Uh, we talked in a couple of Sundays ago on uh, Moses' decision, pleasure or pleasure. That's the choice we have as Christians. We have pleasure immediate with long-term consequences or pleasure that's not so immediate, but it has long-term reward. It all depends on how good your vision is as to what you'll choose. So, amen?